You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Unquirking a Story is brought to you by Mike Carlin's new novel, Slippery People. Available in ebook or paperback format from Amazon.com. Buy your copy today and help send Mike's kids to college. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Unquirking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my recent conversation with Pat Oates, a comedian and author whose book, How Not to Suck at Comedy, can be purchased from Amazon.com. Pat is a comic who uh, sleeps, breathes, eats comedy, and that passion comes through not only in his act, but also his podcast as well as his writing. Before I get to Pat, though, uh, there's a few things that I want to share because the world has changed a bit since the last time I did one of these. So since last we spoke, how was the world different? Well, I don't know about you, but a few months ago, I was thinking about this whole COVID-19 thing as a problem for other people, you know, but here we are, we're sheltering in place. And as an extrovert who gets paid to talk to people in person for a living, I find myself in a rather precarious situation. But not only that, it's not just about me and how I make a living. It's, it's about the kids I have at home. You know, I've got three seniors in high school. They're about to turn 18 in a few days. And uh, it's, it's fair to say that they're uh, more than just a bit bummed that they can't see their friends. Um, they're missing some key milestones in their senior year that are either being, you know, at best put off or at worst canceled. Um, the other day, it, uh, it really got me down uh, to the point where I was uh, crying uncontrollably in my home office. And unfortunately, that office has a bed in it. So at least I could weep in comfort, but it pushed me to, uh, to start, I can laugh about it now, but, um, it pushed me to start focusing on the silver linings that I've seen as a result of, of this whole shelter in place thing. You know, for example, I've seen more people walking around my neighborhood than I ever have before. And um, when I go running, I always run outside. I'm not always run over every few minutes uh, by some crazy motorist. Um, I sound like an old man. My kids, my kids are always at home. And I know they think that stinks, right? They think it stinks. I don't blame them. But it's a blessing for us because, you know, they're leaving for college in, in the fall. And I'm, I'm really going to miss them. So those are some of the, uh, the silver linings that I found. And uh, I started to compile them. I, I started to compile these thoughts that I had. I put them into a blog that I'm calling The Daily Smile. You can find it on MikeCarlin.com. Just click on the Open Mic blog link in the navigation, and you can see my my daily mood enhancers. And I know a few of you have been uh, commenting on them through social media. I, I do appreciate that. It means a lot. Um, I try to make everybody laugh, basically, uh, in those, either through through past memories I ha- I've had or, or experiences, et cetera. So g- give it a whirl. See what you think. Um, I'm also uh, happy to announce uh, big news. 
after a two-year process of writing and rewriting and editing and rewriting and editing and rewriting again, I'm excited to report that Slippery People is available for sale. Yes, yes, it is available. I've been talking about this project for a couple years. It is available for sale. I did have it on promotion on Amazon this past Tuesday. It shot up to number three in the general humor category. So I was very happy to see that. Excited to get it in the hands of uh, many people. Early reviews uh, have been positive, not that I would tell you otherwise. And uh, if you are one of the people who did receive uh, an advanced reader copy, I know that a few of you listen to this, uh, please consider writing a review on Amazon or Goodreads because that really does help me um, sell copies, uh, make some money, which is important when you're sheltering in place and you talk to people for a living, and um, also help send my kids to college. Because I mentioned they're all going to college in the fall. So that's that. And that's enough about me. Let's talk about Pat Oates. So I met Pat at a comedy club in Connecticut. He hosts a bringer show uh, put on by former Uncorking a Story guest, Frank Margallo. You remember the Frank interview? If you haven't heard it, go back, listen to it. It's classic. Um, and, you know, he's uh, Pat's one of these comics um, who is extremely engaging, but also very, very generous with his time. Uh, if he likes something you say as a fellow comic, but but he sees that it needs work, he'll give you some advice. And, you know, that's that's a, a form of generosity. And, and that generosity led him to write an advice column for stand-ups. And he took all those columns and he put them into a book, which I mentioned before. But I will mention again because Pat's a nice guy. The book is called How Not to Suck at Comedy. And it's a real treasure trove of advice for comics of any level and ability. One of the standout quotes from this conversation uh, I had with Pat is as follows. He says... I don't know everything, and I don't know most things. I have to be open to everything and not afraid to ask questions. Always question yourself and don't be afraid to fail. And I love that. It's a humbling message, and I've heard it from other successful people in other fields. I've heard it from other authors. I've heard it from entrepreneurs who have gone on to very successful, successful careers in business. And this idea of, of being open to learning new things and open to failure really speaks to me because, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur too. I started my own business years ago, um, and it's scary. You have to be open to failure. You have to be willing to try new things. Um, you know, that's another thing we talk about in this interview is kind of what Pat's doing now since there's there's no comedy shows to promote, and he's taking his creative efforts and, and you know, doing more writing and exploring, you know, other ways of, of getting – his comedy out there. So, you know, they say it's true. Necessity is the, the mother of invention, right? And I sound like my mother now. Apologies for that. Um, but here, here's, here's at the end of the day, here's what you need to know. Pat Oates is a great comic, right? He's a great comic, and I hope you enjoy his story as much as I did. So now, without any further interruptions from me, here's my conversation with the one and only Pat Oates. doing five things at once <laughs> you've got a little uh, you got a little scott ian from anthrax thing happening there i guess yeah i think i'm older than him so i think i win but um <laughs> you know yeah, i've uh, had that going for a little while here we are let's go to the full view so i can be here and boom, there we are scott ian of I, course uh, married to meatloaf's daughter pearl of course <laughs> you know i mean everybody everybody knows that 
Well, I also like you said it like, of course they married. <laughs> Anthrax and meatloaf make sense. <laughs> On so many, <laughs> so many different levels, you know? Um, it's funny. Meatloaf lived, I live in, in Stanford, Connecticut. And I guess back in the 80s, he had a house here. And um, it's for sale now because a friend of my kids lives on the street where that house was. And um, it's actually like in the newspaper, uh, it says like Meatloaf lived here. Like it, that's the selling point of the house. It's unbelievable. And I'm sure there's diners in the area where it's like people live from the Meatloaf here. So they can get confusing. It's like <laughs> you know, our, our two big celebrities down this way were Meatloaf and Hulk Hogan because he used to have a place um, in Stanford. Yeah, a lot of wrestlers had places down that way because of everything going on. So, I mean, a ton of guys lived down there. Yeah. So, because we, we are home to the WWE or the WWF as it was when I was a kid. Right. Yeah. I'm still an avid. I'm one of the. I'm an avid for 45 years. Avid WWE fan. I, I watch everything. So did, now, did you did you watch WrestleMania with with yes. the no audience? How how I didn't get I didn't get a chance to see it. But how was it? Um, I, do you know who Eric Bischoff is? He yeah. was the guy who ran WCW. He explained it great in his podcast. It was like watching Dancing with the Stars, but there's no music. Um, <laughs> you're watching people that are incredible. What they could be the two best dancers in the world. Without that audience element, it fell off. Yeah. Um, they did a great job to sell and push things. The two things that stood out with WrestleMania was uh, the two produced things. Um, they did a thing called the Firefly Fountain House where John Cena and Bray Wyatt's character, it was never in a ring. It was like inside the mind of John Cena. It was like a movie. It had like a saw element and a craziness. And they, WWE, like, they spent, you know, spare no expense when it comes to production and movie production, things like that. They did a great job with the editing. And they did another match with The Undertaker and AJ Styles called a Boneyard match. And that was like a fight outside of a construction thing. And it was edited and all that stuff. And they, they kind of changed the way you could watch wrestling now with no audience. But the other matches, it was tough. But if you, but it was a nice escape for two days yeah. just to not hear about COVID and all these things. It was something fun to watch. And you respected all of them for working that hard trying to do something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, also, I mean, they, uh, it's, it's a close contact sport. So, you know, they're putting themselves obviously not within, you know, outside of six feet of each other. You know, they're, uh, they're, they're putting their lives on the line. They had to change some of the matches. Um, yeah. the, one of the main events, Roman Reigns, was supposed to be in it. Roman Reigns uh, had leukemia. He's in remission now from it. So he decided that I cannot do this. I can't because he's, his immune system is exposed. So he had to pull out and not fight, and they had to do a change last second. And another wrestler, The Miz, also said he was starting to feel ill and didn't feel right with having babies in his house and stuff like that, exposing himself. And the WWE was understandable and did not make them you know, work. Yeah. And they were able to be out of it. So Yeah. So that's uh, you know, it's an interesting point. Them kind of like forcing, forcing them like this. This whole thing that's going on is forcing companies and and people to to really rethink how they do things. Right. Um, and it's actually like to me, it's like it can actually force innovation and sometimes you know positive innovation. Like I, I was watching, um, I like country music, so I was watching the, the Academy of Country Music special that was on last Friday night. And usually it's you know that that, that big produced show with you know. I don't know where they do it, the Ryman Auditorium or whatever, but uh, they basically just had all these country music performers going acoustic from their family room, recording it on their iPad. And it was fantastic. Like it was, it was, it was great. Um, as movie anyone that's built any, if you want to take any musician who's built for this, it's country music. Yeah. 
Because that's where it roots from. People being in their backyard, playing for their friends, strumming. It's not someone looking for that. I mean, yes, nowadays, because country music is not what it used to be. We were growing up where, like, you were weird or different or you had to, like, be from the South. It's now mainstream as can be. Country music flows into pop music very easily now. Same way with rap. They're all kind of blended together. That, but back then, and even now, they grew up just playing guitar and doing acoustic stuff. They didn't have full bands and things like that. So that's that to me. That's who I'd want to hear. But I, I don't know who was on. I didn't watch it. I don't know a lot of country music, but I love Chris Stapleton, and I would want to see someone like him do that because I'll go on YouTube rabbit holes all the time to see all the things he's done and recorded with people. Cause he's such a brilliant songwriter and great performer. Yeah. So I guess my question for you, um, as as a comic. Um, how how are you handling all this this whole shelter in place thing? I mean, it must be, you know, painful to 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 not have a place to perform, um, you know, every night of the week. Yes, but also the part about being not being able to perform. Yes, that's been very tough, not only financially, but also it's a way I it's my therapy. It's my how I you know express myself. I enjoy it. I, I love being in that element. But when it comes to the quarantine. Comics, we're all living this life. During the day, we're all in our houses. We're all we're the ones already doing the Skypes, the Zooms, the YouTubes. So I just found other ways to, you know, use green screen. I'm, I've been trying to be more creative with being at home and saying, now that I have this opportunity to learn these things, I didn't get a chance to. Let me learn that. Let me learn how to try to d- deal with more technology. My kids got me signed up on TikTok. We were playing around on there so I could figure out different ways to express myself. Because I think this is a time where – when comics always say like, you know, when you can't change this, you can't, you know, comedy is only funny this way. And then somebody does something that changes that and everyone climbs. I think we're going to see a lot of new ways to entertain. That's going to make creative people really come out and find that maybe stand up can be done in many different manners. We're not there yet, but I think we're going to find ways because a lot of people are going to be afraid to go out. Once they say it's okay, there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to want to be in crowds. It's going to hurt local shows. It's not going to hurt big shows someone's going to want to go see kevin hart but they're probably going to be a little worried to go see me because they don't know who i am and they're going to be in a place with like 75 to 150 people and they don't know the environment is it worth going out and risking so that we're going to find new ways you know yeah and then it's also like the club owners too i would imagine are, are going to take the the big name the guaranteed money um versus you know and like bumping you know people who are just kind of hitting that that, you know, regular performing stride, you know, people who are, you know, doing well, kind of headlining local shows. Like I, I imagine like places like the stress factory, you know, they might be, you know, bumping people to get the bigger names and the bigger names are going to want to start performing as well. Right. But the counter side to that is that the bigger names may look at this and say, I don't want to travel as much anymore. Sure. I don't really need to. I don't, I have a lot of money. I'm finding that I can make a lot of money and can do a lot for my own home. I can sit here and people would people will pay money to go to my OnlyFans. People will pay money to go on my Patreon. And they, I don't really need to go out and do it. And I can just record a special somewhere and run it myself and not go to the smaller clubs. I think that a lot of the – I think the guys that will do the club stuff will be the people that can have a bit of a draw but not cost a ton of money because you don't know they're going to come in. I think that local ringer will be someone who will get a lot of work, who's like a guy who can draw or a girl who can draw – 50 60 people throughout the weekend who might not be as funny but maybe they're the ones that get their friends to come out if i was a club owner i'd be afraid to invest too much money because what if this happens again yeah. what if they have guarantees i don't have guarantees 
You right. can you can pay me for the weekend. I get what I get. Yeah, there might be a deal like, hey, if you wait till Friday to cancel, you got to pay me something. Those guys, they get half the money deposited to the agent before. They lose out on money if they do cancel. What if they turn around and say, sorry, we're not done yet. Now we're quarantining again. So I think it's it depends if the club has a lot of money, is run well, and believes in itself and its promotion. Yeah. If they do, I think we're going to see a lot of small clubs go out of business because right now they have no money coming in. So I think we're going to lose some clubs. The big names will be fine, but some of the small, like, yeah, the Stress Factory and Comics and Morgan Sun and Funny Bone, they're all large ones that can support themselves and, and take care of that. They're going to take a little hit, obviously, but they'll be able to recover. But there are some small local clubs, you know, throughout New England and stuff like that that are not going to be able to recover from this at all. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know, people are going to want to come come out and laugh after this, you know, when, when it is start you know, it's safe to start getting into to crowds again. They're, they're going to need that. Some, release. some will, but I think some are, I think we're going to find a lot of people that, did, I think some people are going to become used to this lifestyle and people that weren't ones to go out all the time are going to be like, well, I, I can, I can just stay in now. I think some clubs are going to take advantage of what we're learning now. I, I think you're gonna be able to buy tickets to comedy shows on a closed thing through zoom. And you'll be able to watch the show through here. And your laughter will come out through one speaker. I think they can find that, that way. You could charge, you know, you could pay $20 to go to the show, $15 general admission, $10 to Zoom for the show. And you turn it off. You, they, they'll, set, they'll, they'll find ways to make sure I can't record it or anything like that. But I can pay money. And on my one link, I can watch a comedy show from Stress Factory. And uh, I think that will be take care of the people that are afraid to go out. And, yeah, you'll lose money on the drinks and food. But I'm sure they'll find a way to go. If you click this button, part of your Grubhub order will go to our club 10% while you're watching it. And we'll get the. They'll always find ways. But I think I don't think we're just going to go back to normal. I don't think you can. When you shut down a species and you say you can't exist the way you were, some are going to be strong and be able to come back out and deal like nothing happened. But a lot of them are going to be leery, especially with something that we don't understand at all. Right. Right. So you, I mean, one of the reasons why I want to talk to you is you've got this book, How Not to Suck at Comedy. And I, yep. I want to just to dig into to that a little bit. But before we, we start talking about the book, which which I've read and I love, um, Thank you. I, I wanted to get a sense of like when when did comedy come into your mind as something that you thought you could make a career out of? Like when when did it go? Actually, when did it come into your life to begin with? And then when did it go from being a hobby to a career path? I got tricked. Um, seriously, I got tricked into doing comedy. I I was always the guy, like, I'm sure, Michael, you're the same way. Your group of friends throughout life tells you, you're the funny guy, you should be a comedian, whatever. But, like, you don't even know what that means or what it is or where to go. Uh, once you start doing comedy, you find out comedy's like Fight Club. There's a lot of underground places you can go find comedy you didn't know existed. Yeah. But when I first was hanging out with a buddy of mine that I've known since college. We were just hanging out one day and he said, let's go to this bar and just get some wings and, you know, go there. And we went there and they were having a comedy contest in Naugatuck, Connecticut, some small bar it was called Melissa's. Uh, we went there just to have wings and stuff. I did not know there was a local comedy contest going on. I also did not know that he signed me up for it. So we sat in the audience. The, they had four contestants. They announced before one of them, actually there, there was three judges, the owner of the bar, the owner's father, and a girl they were both trying to sleep with. And they were the three judges. And they sat at a table behind the stage like they were American Idol judges. And they were going to decide who won $100 for the comedy contest. 
It was a guy who just lost his job who looked like Joe Pesci, and he uh, he lost his painting job, so he needed a hundred dollars to pay off some bill or something, and he he needed it bad. And all he did was like bad impressions of like Rodney Dangerfield, but he'd have to say Rodney Dangerfield after because it was so bad you didn't know who it was. <laughs> the second contestant was a magician who was trying to do card tricks in front of a drunk audience on a Friday night in Naugatuck, Connecticut. He was doing his cards and someone, and someone made fun of him and he, he threw the cards at them and just said 52 card pickup mother effer and just boom, hit him right in the face. <laughs> and so the third guy was actually the fry cook from the restaurant and they had to t- tell everyone to stop ordering wings and tenders for a little bit so he could come up and perform with aprons, look with grease on them. And actually, didn't do bad. Like SpongeBob jokes about being a fry cook. It wasn't bad. And they said, we have one more contestant. And they said, uh, they read the name. They went, Pat Oates. I looked at my friend, and he goes, you know you can do this. I walked up. I made fun of the three judges. I made fun of the people in the room. I made fun of Naugatuck, Connecticut. How there's that weird smell on Route 8. No one knows what it is. I made everything going on. And I won $100. And um, when it was over, my friend looked at me and said, you're funnier than three people. That's a start. Right. And right there... I got the bug and I was like, I wonder, I know that I know what I just did wasn't comedy. I know that's not what comedy is. And I know that I'm not going to just go places and get a hundred dollars for not having anything, but I didn't know what it was. So this is dating myself. I got home. I was living in Simsbury, Connecticut at the time. And I went on uh, MySpace, which was the thing then. And I went on there and I, I looked for comedians in my area. And I found a comedian named Linda Belt who uh, is still doing comedy all over. And she's uh, from West Hartford area at the time. And I messaged her and said, I'm, I want to know about comedy. Can you help me? And she steered me in the direction of an open mic, which was at Sweet Jane's in Hartford. That was run by a comedian. Now I'm doing it for a good friend of mine, Darren Rivera. He ran it. And a lot of the comedians that I know and work with now and are still working were all guys there. And I showed up and the rest, I just, once I started doing it, I couldn't stop. And I, it was a hobby at first, but it became something that I kind of took to right away. And people started hiring me right away. I didn't know what I was doing yet. But I started getting involved and liking it, and then it's been twelve years ever since. So the, the the bug bites you, and you live with the sting, as they say. A lot of people say this, and I don't know from experience, but a lot of people say when you do heroin, it's the first hit that make that you're always chasing. It's that high. What the reason why people continue to do it always is because they they want that first high again. The first time you make strangers laugh into a microphone, like for real. I'm still chasing that laugh. Yeah. I've done really well. I've been in big places. I, I've had great laughs. I've done really tremendous shows that I'm really proud of. Nothing's better than that first time you didn't realize that you had this power. Yeah. And you go after that. And that's what that's the bug I got. And I wanted to know how to do that all the time. Yeah, it becomes like this this like intrinsic, like motivating factor. Like and and I, I know it too, like you know, I was I was always always to make always able to make like my family laugh and my father laugh. Like if I could get him laughing, you know, I, I know that I, I've done something funny. But you know, when when you can get a, a bunch of people laughing who don't give a shit about you, um, to, to give them that like emotional moment or that emotional release, you're right. I mean, there is like no feeling like that in the world. And like my wife doesn't understand. She's like, I don't understand why you do that because she'll see me go up and fail, and she'll be like, you know, it just it just hurts me when you, when you fail, like I feel bad for you. I'm like, don't feel bad for me. I'm like, it just didn't work out. But the moment you get that laugh or, or like an applause break to me, that's like, I, I, it's, I have a hard time sleeping after that, you know, like you're just kind of 
kind of wired from it. Yes. Um, both ways. I think the more you do it, actually, those start to – you don't care as much. Um, the applause breaks the la- – you start to feel like, okay, I was supposed to do that. That's my job. I actually – if when I'm working on material, if I don't have a fail for a little bit with the joke, I think there's something wrong with what I'm doing. I need fails because I need to go up there. There's, I don't believe in bombing. I've said this in my book and I've said this to a million people. I don't believe in killing or bombing. That's ridiculous. It's, it's just learning from things. And you, Comedy is nothing more than writing to edit, to repeat, to write, to edit. To, that's all you're doing. The first time you do a joke, it's not done. You might, it might've worked, but to make it universal has to work that way. So to me, I need failure because I need to go back, listen to the audio and go, okay, now what, how do I change this? How, how do I work on this and that, whatever, how do I make this? So the world gets it. Cause it's my job to make sure they get it. If it, if it just hits hard and they laugh a lot of times I'll say it probably had something to do with the situation more than the joke or my skill set. It's just the moment, you know, and I kind of push that away because you, you don't want to ride highs. You don't want to live in the lows, but you want to, you don't want to deny the lows. Yeah. And one of the things I like about it is um, I'm, a, I'm a writer. I, I've written seven novels now. And like for me to get feedback on them, like you, you've got to write it, you've got to you know edit it, yeah, publish it, and then wait for reviews to come in for, for the most part. I mean, you can right. give it to friends and family to see what they think, but they're going to lie to you. Um, and and, and even if you give it to someone who isn't a friend or whatever, they're either going to be overcritical and act like there's something they're not, or they're going to, they, they just don't even know what they're saying. They're like, it was good, but it's not something for me. I'm like, well, yeah, I, I, I want it to be for you. It's a book. It's like, right. But with comedy, it's like, and, and most of my novels, I mean, I, I, I write in, in like the mystery genre, but they're always comedic. Like there's always like some, some wackiness in there, but you know, for me to get, I have to wait for feedback, but with comedy, it's like, I can write a joke. Um, and I'll know immediately if it's good or bad because people are either laughing or they're not. And it's like, to me, like that immediate feedback is, is, you know, something that, um, you know, I don't get from my other creative outlet, which is, you know, kind of writing novels. Right. The, like with myself, I now also do a part-time radio gig, which right now is not going on either. And that was the hardest challenge was not having that instant gratification or, instant failure, if you will, I'm now saying something and hoping like, like, but I had been podcasting. So even if I'm with somebody else on the show, I've started to learn the same way you said, I, I know when writing a joke already, even if I say it an open mic and no one's there and no one laughs, I know if it's funny or not. Now I've yeah. learned the formula. I understand what I have to do with it. I don't need the 12 people at the open mic who are not paying attention to laugh. Right. If I'm killing at an open mic, I throw out the joke because that means that because the, if you're laughing at something at an open mic and it's mostly comics or drunks, they're not the audience you're looking for. Yeah. And they're laughing at peculiar, odd, failure, stupid, crazy things like that. I, I, so I don't even like going with that. I need to know right away if it connects or not within like, and resonates i don't also care so much if you laugh at it i want to know afterwards if you come up to me and say hey when you talked about this this made me think this that's where i know i've got something and that's where i start to feel that connection more so like i i kind of ignore like you were saying before like getting the first laugh i um knowing right away i ignore that 
I need to know it's going to work 10 times, 20 times, not once. Because it might have, it could have been the moment. It could have been the way I was feeling. It could have been a word. But can I continue that? Can I go the next night to the next place with a new gathering of human beings and make them laugh the same way the first night did? Consistency to make sure it works all the time. So that's why I think it, it, you can hear the first laugh. It could work. And then you overthink or change things wrong or do whatever. Can you continue to make it? That's what makes a comic. It's night in, night out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, not to make a, a nerdy comparison, but I, I, I come out of the field of market research and there's something we always look for when we're, when we're testing concepts like new product ideas, which is reliability. You know, it worked with this sample of people. Is it going to work again with a, an, another sample of 300 people right. and another sample? So we actually like, like we actually do mathematics to figure out like what's the reliability of this result and it's the same thing. It sounds like it's the same thing with comedy. You know, how reliable is this joke going to be if I do it with another audience in another state, in another city, et cetera? When you're doing the product, the end of the day is, does everybody get what this product is? Does everybody understand what I need to do with this product? That's what your joke is. Does everyone get what I'm saying? Does everyone understand my message? And does everybody, can everybody be on board? Do they have to have prior knowledge of something to get to understand this? If so, that's not on them. That doesn't mean the joke's not for them. That means it's on me to make sure they receive the message. Because at the end of the day, I showed up on a stage and started talking. I, I can't want, I can't need them to do homework first. I can't need them to know a show. So therefore, if I do a joke and it's, and I mention a TV show and you know, I say stranger things, and, but the audience is like in their sixties, young comics would go, well, they don't know the show. They don't get my humor. Well, you brought up stranger things. They may not know it. So what can you do? Can you use a simile? Can you use comparisons? Is there things you can do to make to say, well, sim- no, stranger things is like, duh, duh, duh. and then they go, oh, okay. And then you continue the joke. It's a quick thing. And now they connect. So it's that same thing. Test markets. I do it in front of these people. They get this. I do it in front of these people. They get that. But at the end of the day, just make sure that you're speaking a universal language, which is funny. If they, you know, they don't have all the knowledge, if it's funny and it works and it, and it, and it has a right structure to it, people will laugh. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I noticed that I took away from your book is, is kind of the importance of like, especially if, if you are kind of a younger comic watching the other comics who are performing um, for two reasons, a, what you can learn from them, but B what you can kind of ascertain from the crowd, like what is the crowd reacting to? And then kind of using that as kind of insight into what you're going to perform up there and just kind of tailoring um, what you're going to perform up there. Um, right, and not just for that show you're on. Yeah. You should do that to use for future shows. Just because that one audience, I'll watch, and I'm not always in my head saying, okay, they're, that this audience is getting that from this person, so they'll relate to this. I like to see, at the end of the day, we're writing from our point of view, but trying to connect with other people's point of views. So I need to understand how other people see the world for me to connect with them how I see the world. So watch how other comics attack things. If I talk about, my kids and another comic goes up and talks about their kids. How do they approach things? How do they say things? And how is the audience reacting to that? Is that different or similar to how I deliver and say things? And if they're not connecting, what do I need to do to make sure they understand the same message this guy is not getting across? So by not paying attention, you could miss out. If you watch a guy, three guys hit on the same girl in a bar and they do the same pickup line and it doesn't work, and then I walk up and do the same pickup line, of course I'm going to fail. But if I know Noticed that they were doing that, and I realized they were being creepy. How about have a nice personable approach? Then it may work for me. You start, you read the room, and you know your audience. Yeah, 
Yep. So I want to I want to talk about the book. So um, what 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 got you thinking about you know putting all this wisdom down into a book for other comics uh, other comics to use? Like when did that that thought come to you? Um, once again, like everything else in my life, by mistake, um, I was I was um, a couple years ago. Uh, Dave Chappelle was going to be making his comeback, and he was going to be on Saturday Night Live. Him, and if you remember this, him and um, Tribe Called Quest were going to be on it. And how old are you? I'm 45. Right, so am I. Okay. So we are from that same age where those people were a big deal in the world oh, yeah. at a certain time in our lives. And so to me, I wasn't watching Saturday Night Live a lot then, and it was there was nothing that made me want to tune in. When I saw they were going to be on, I put something on Facebook just saying, wow, for the first time in a long time, I'm being drawn to want to watch Saturday Night Live. I'm very interested to see how Dave Chappelle talked. This is when Trump was running. It was just about to become president. And I was very interested to see how they would react to the world and be given a live mic, both of them, and see how they did that. And I wrote something like that on Facebook. And uh, a guy named Cameron Amigo, who runs a company called Laugh Staff, was a friend of mine because he's also a comic as well. He was doing you know, comic in some parts of New York and stuff. And it messaged me and said, I saw your post and I really was interested on your take on that. Would you mind writing a small little article for our last night? We usually, last night was mostly known for doing um, best man speeches and made of honor speeches and things like that. In a comic, they would hire comics to do it to make, you know, so people could have funny things to say at a wedding. They'd pay them for that. But they also dabbled in other comics writing other things. They wanted to branch out a little. So I said, sure. I've never written anything like that. And I wrote something about it. They enjoyed it. And they said, how about we try to do something where you're a comic that no one really knows but has been working a long time. How about like a diary of a comic type deal? So I tried that. And I wrote it for a week or two. But I noticed I didn't – that wasn't really me. And I was at an open mic, and I was watching some comics struggle with some stuff that I struggled with. And I kind of just walked up to one comic and said, hey, instead of this, this, this. And they were like, oh, wow. That I didn't realize other people even dealt with that. And so when I went home, I, I messaged them and I said, would it be okay if I kind of wrote an advice thing? And they said, yeah, well, you can try it. I said, and it wouldn't be like me coming from that point of view. Like, and I'm not trying to make fun of anything, but like the comedy Bible and books like that, they come from a point of view of someone who had already made it. It was kind of talking down. I don't mean in a rude way, but they, yeah. it was a more of a lecture type book. And I was like, I want to talk to people about, Hey, I'm in this moment with you. I'm seeing the obstacles you're seeing now. I can try to at least help answer questions or make you realize you're not alone in these questions that you're dealing with at open mics. So I just started to write about those kinds of things. And I just started putting it up on with that on Laugh Staff and posting it on Medium and things like that. And it started to grow traction. And not just in Connecticut, but like all over New England. And people are sharing in other groups. Next thing I know, I'm in groups in Ohio. I'm in groups in Arizona. And people are messaging me saying, we love these articles. Keep them going. And it was just a weekly thing. And I continued to do it. And about a year and a half, two years in, I was approached by someone to say, why don't you turn this into a book? People would love this. And I was like, ah, it's uh, people only like it because it's free. Nobody would really, you know, that doubt you have in your head. And I was never someone who ever wrote. I was a crowd work guy forever. I was not known for writing. I, um, I started to write those articles and realized, wait, if I could connect with people with the articles, maybe I could write jokes better too. So when I started doing that, I told myself for one year, no crowd work. And I started to write jokes. And in two years, I had, I recorded two albums of an hour each of material. So the writing from the books helped me start writing better jokes and it advanced me as a comic as well. And I think that also helped me write these articles because I was going through the struggling process of almost a newer comic 
trying to reinvent myself and write and rewrite and edit and going to mics and reading audiences and trying to deal with bookers and all the things. So I think everything just connected with people. And it just, when I put it out on ebook, people said, well, it needs to be a paperback. And then we went to there. And the great thing was one of the guys who, I know I'm going on forever and I apologize, but one of the guys that uh, really enjoyed it was a guy named uh, Rick Jenkins who owns the uh, comedy studio in Boston. And he was sharing it with people and he's had the who's who of comedians come through his place and uh, responsible for so many people getting on late night shows and things like that. And he had always shared my articles and enjoyed them and messaged me and said, I really love what you're doing there. And I tell people to read the articles every week. So when I was going to write the book, I said, would you mind writing the forward? And he wrote me an incredible forward. And it was so amazing to have someone that I respected like that at a place like that, speak up about the articles, how it helps people. And I get great feedback from it to this day. I mean, people just really connect with it from all levels. So that's really makes me feel good because it was just supposed to, it's supposed to be for comics. It's a way for comics to go. You're not alone. You know, you're not alone in this struggle, these weird obstacles. And we're all afraid. No one's afraid to go. I have an article about it. No one's afraid to go on stage and talk about their penis or how they masturbate, but they're afraid to ask if they're getting paid at a gig or if they can do seven minutes. It's really weird what we're afraid to say and not afraid to say. So I wanted to try to answer those questions for people. They can look through the book and say, Oh, that is okay to worry about this or think that, or I don't need to approach it this way. So in in your mind, like what, what are the biggest misconceptions that, you know, people have about comics. Um, you know, what, what do you think? You know, the, the average everyday person, what, what, what do you think the biggest misconceptions are? Couple. One, we're always on and we're always funny. Um, it must be great to be, you tell somebody to joke. Oh, it must be crazy. Your wife must be crazy living with a comedian. Well, no, he's a human being who does a thing. It, uh, it, it, we're not always on. Now, if you're a comic and you're working constantly, your mind is always you have a comedic mind. I mean, you're really, you're, you really, your mind is trained. You might have a mathematical mind. There's different people with different ways they approach things in life. They see things a certain way. I, you and I will look at something and laugh at something that other people will go, you, don't, you shouldn't laugh at that. I'm yeah. Like, yeah, that's why it's funny. You know, but they don't understand that. So, therefore, you know, he's always on. He, you know, you must be always funny to be with that we have money. That seriously, because when they watch TV, they see big stars. They don't. Most people, 90% of the world that watches comedy, I mean, now with podcasts and and Joe Rogan and people making, working out jokes and things like that known, most people don't know about the struggle that like every other struggling artist. And they, and so therefore they think like, if you're a comic and you're performing at Mohegan Sun, you must be getting paid a ton. And it's like, well, no, the big name who draws you is in, but the other opening acts are just people trying to hopefully get there. Right. You know, and that's, that's another one. And I, it's, those are basically the, the main ones I think that people usually think. Oh, and also that we don't write our own material and we just go up there and say whatever. <laughs> Everyone's just like, oh, you know, you know, you said, or I saw you, I saw you last time. Why did you do the same joke? It's like, well, that's how you make it good. No, I saw Jerry Seinfeld five years ago and a year ago, and he did different jokes. Like, well, there was a five years where he worked on those jokes very much. So, I think there's a lot of misconceptions with that. Oh, and the main one, and I'm sure you've heard this, anyone can do it. Yeah, anyone can do it. I could do it. I could go up there if I wanted to, and they don't realize because to be a musician, you need to have to know how to play an instrument. If to to be an artist, you know, to know how to paint or form clay or things like that. You and I are just talking into a microphone. They can talk. They think they can just do it, and 
therefore they don't always have a respect for the art of it. And I hate calling it art. This sounds stupid, but like at the end of the day, it is an art form and we are creating things and we are eliciting feelings out of people through our words and our movements. So therefore I think a lot of people think it's easy and don't, won't take the chance to do it. And if they did, it's very easy just to blame the audience, the room, the situation, the other comics bring in, they don't have to blame themselves. So it's very, they don't have respect for us or the art, but they think that they could just be the best at it ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like uh, asking them, you know, when can three minutes feel like three hours? <laughs> the answer is at an right. open mic when you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. I think it's, I'm not a, I'm not a NASCAR guy, but I bet you there's a lot of people who watch NASCAR and then go, I could drive fast. I could I could go left five hundred times. It's like that that machine could kill you right. in a second. You're not good driving sixty with rules. Like imagine driving with all those cars, but you couldn't do it. But I think there's certain things that we watch and go, I could do that. But no one watches Michael Jordan and goes, I can do that. You go, okay, I can't do that. What he's doing is there, but it took skill and to make it look effortless. But the best comics look effortless, so people watch them and go, oh, I could be Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart's just talking. No, he's not. It's been crafted, skilled, run through the ringer. And, and the amount of pressure he has to be funny constantly because the world's wanting him to fail. It's, it's insane. What we have to go through, we have to go through judgment constantly. People are sitting there. If you, don't, if, if you and I walk on stage and no one knows us, they're with their arms crossed. They are inside. They are judging you, and they're waiting for you to gain their trust. You have to go up right away, and that's why I never understand why a comic goes up and goes, how's everybody doing tonight? Oh, you're having wings? Oh, what about the weather? It's like, make tell a joke. Tell a 30, a 15 to – what is happening there? Sorry. Um, <laughs> tell a 15-second – I was converting another thing. A 15-second to 30-second quick joke that makes them laugh, uncross their arms, give you their trust, and now, and now pull back, and now they can enjoy yeah. That's the bit we have to do that right away. We have to diffuse that right away and come up. And that's harder to me than painting. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> you could paint and then you could throw it away. The second I if I screw up at the beginning and don't get your trust, I'm digging out of a hole. So I think people don't respect it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like when I you'd see like new people go up and um, you know, like uh, at an open mic. Like I, I I used to go up to the sea grape all the time on Monday nights. They, they, there'd be a show there. And that, that, I mean, that place is like, it's like Thunderdome. I mean, it's a bunch of drunks, uh, town drunks at the bar in Fairfield and, and people watching baseball on mute. And they're more interested in the baseball on mute than they are about the comics. But w when I see like kids go up, I say kids because everyone's a hell of a lot younger than I am. But, I'm with you on that one. But when I see them go up and they say like, uh, I'm so stoned right now. Like, I'm like, that's how you're starting it. You know, it's, it's, um. Um, and even though that gets a, it's, it's, you know, it's not a real show, it's an open mic and it's a, it's a weird open mic at that. But, you know, I, I do think that there are a lot of things that like really young brand new comics can learn. And I'm curious, like, what's the first piece of advice you would give somebody who's, you know, going on stage for the first, you know, second or third time in their life? What would you tell them? It doesn't matter. That's what I tell all of them. It doesn't matter this show is not a show it doesn't matter if you get a laugh if you fail if you crush if a joke works doesn't work if you do three minutes instead of five if you forget the words to your joke it doesn't matter and remember that for every show you ever do 
no one show matters. Comedy is about you becoming a better comic. Comedy is about you developing. I don't care if I perform in front of a theater in front of 2,000 people or I perform in front of six drunk people at the Sea Grape. It doesn't matter because the next day I still wake up and have to do comedy again. I need to become better. So when you first go up, you're, if your whole first year of comedy, you should be doing nothing more than paying attention to everything that's going on when you're at a mic, paying attention to what other people are doing, and just going up and getting used to standing in front of people. Just make noise. You don't know who you are yet. You don't understand. Everything you think you know comedy is, please try to forget. Humble yourself. Stop thinking you know because you watch comedy and you listen to podcasts or you read books. And realize that you're going to have to go up there and just learn from scratch. Because it takes about a year for you to even understand what your voice is on stage. Yeah. Most people, Some people even more than that, two or three years. So I think the key is just take a breath and realize this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right now, everything you're doing is practice. Nothing is an audition. Nothing is a chance for you to be on TV. If I know that they're convincing. I know that your friends are telling you you're hilarious. I know that you're at a club in New York. I know that they're telling you that you're going to be this big thing. But then why would there be comics more famous than you? Why would they be doing it for 30 years? Why wouldn't, they, why wouldn't, why wouldn't Seinfeld just have his first day be at Broadway, do his big show, and then it was over? No, it, it, you don't be hoodwinked into other things. Realize it's a long process and just take a breath and just enjoy what you're doing. Have fun. Because if you're not going to, if you're going to already be stressed out right away, you'll never have fun with this. You got to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. And as, as you're, as you're talking about that, I'm realizing a, how judgmental I've been, but also B it's, it's almost like running and I know you're a runner. Um, so it's like, you know, you know, when you start off running for the first time and I, I've been a runner forever, you know, you're going to have some bad runs, right? You're going to, you're going to be like, Oh my God, I just didn't feel it. Or I couldn't push myself or, you know, something will happen. And what you have to realize is that every run is going to make you better. And, you know, you're not going to be able to do, you know, a 10 mile run if you've only been running for, you know, a month or so, right? You have to build up to that. You got to build up the endurance to that. So every individual run doesn't really matter. And unless you're thinking about it from the point of view of it's getting me just a little bit better, it's helping me build my endurance just a little bit. And it's like almost like baby steps to the ultimate goal. And I, I, I that, that sort of analogy kind of came to me as you were, as you were just saying that. Oh, without a doubt. and as you know, you could have, if you have a great run, if you have, if you're done and you feel like, you know what, I could have gone another mile. Yeah. That's a good feeling and all, but that's not going to help you. What you learn from is when you have that run where you're doing a five mile run and run in mile two, you, you're like, I need to quit. Am I going to continue to push? I mean, not if you're at the point of hurting yourself, but in other words, is this just my mind telling me I can't? Can I get through this? Can I make this become the run that I control? When you're done with that five miles and you did do it, you feel better about yourself and your next day's run and you learn more from it than you did from that great, easy 10-mile run you had that day. Yeah. You know, that run in the rain and the wind where you're like, it's not that cold, but I feel bitter. And, I, you know, why did I choose this path? Because I'm going uphill so much, and it seems like there's never a – how do we not go down? How is there not a down right now? Am I in the sky? How am I running? Oh, there's – you know, I, I chose a path where usually it's easy to run on this road, but there's, you know, cars are driving closer, and there's mud here, and this, and you're just like, what am I doing? I look like – I must look like an idiot. My headphones, my bat – I didn't forget to charge my headphones, and now I am just running to my own thoughts. I can't do that. How do I calm myself? <laughs> Those, just like in comedy, 
the struggles that when you go to the C grape and there's eight people, yes, that's not a show. But that's the run I want. I want eight people not paying attention. I want TVs to be muted. Not I don't want that for a show, but that tells me this if you walk up, if a brand new comic goes up, he's not gonna get their attention. I've been doing this 12 years. I'll get your attention. Not by being a jerk, but by doing a thing that a comic I just had on my podcast a minute ago. He put it up today. Rodney Norman taught me this wonderful thing 12 years ago, and I put it in my book, and it's called Moth to a Flame. And what I do is, Michael, if you're listening to my jokes right now and you're enjoying it, I shouldn't care if the people behind you, the eight people, are, are not paying attention. I, want, I would do that when I was younger. I'd be like, oh, I need their attention. I need them to pay attention to me. I need them to laugh. So I'm ignoring you now, and I'm working to them. Then I'm now I'm just destroying the entire room I had. Instead, I just tell jokes to you. I get you to laugh. Then the other morons in the back go, wait, what's going on over there? Like little moths. They see the flame and they're going, what's going on here? And they start coming in. And the next thing you know, they're paying attention. I get you to come in by just focusing and having confidence. I can run through that wind and rain when I know I'm confident and I can make it. If I don't feel, if I just quit on it, I'm never going to learn from it. And so I, I mean, I used, when I started running, that was the way I kind of compared both things anyway. It is that struggle of fighting through, but it's all about me saying I can do this and I can become better. Yeah. Yeah. I heard, I actually, I heard Roddy on your show probably last year, the first time I'd ever heard him. And then I was listening to Sirius, I don't know, a few months ago on one of the comic channels. I can't remember which the 75 comedy channels they have, but uh, I, I heard a bit of his and I can't remember it off the top of my head. But he's, I mean, you know, he's very, very funny. And um, and I, I don't listen to a lot of clean comedy, but he's, I mean, he's funny and clean. Like those. He is funny and clean, but he delivers it in a way that you don't sit there and go, he's clean. Yeah. You realize later, like, oh, yeah, he's very clean, but he's he's tremendous. He's been doing it forever. He um ran comedy clubs in Utah called Wise Guys. And, um, I mean, he was a guy, one of the first guys to. When Ryan Hamilton started, he helped him out. Uh, he's open for Brian Regan. He's open for Sam Kennison. He's open for David Tell. I mean, he's got a wealth of knowledge, and he lives in between Connecticut and Utah. And when I went to that Sweet Jane's mic, I talked about my first ever open mic. Rodney was there. Okay, and Rodney's one of the guys that came up to me, gave me that bit of advice. And um, I, the next week, he saw me not working to the back of the room. And he said, hey, I noticed you used my advice. I said, well, why wouldn't I? You didn't need to come up to me and say anything. And he goes, well, I'll, be, I'll help you whenever you need it. And I've always remembered that too. When I'm at Mike's, I'll go up to a comic. Not that I'm going to say who, like, I'm somebody, but in the world of New England comedy, comedians know who I am. I wrote the book. I've been doing it a while. I'm one of the few guys who have been doing it as a career now that still show up to open mics and things. But some comics don't know who I am. I'll walk up to somebody if I hear a joke I like. I get excited like a fan. I walk up to some young comic. I'm like, Michael, you told this joke about this. That's amazing. You ever try doing this and that, whatever? Hey, or maybe do this or try to word it this way. You will either look at me and go, oh, great. I mean, I'll take that advice. Or maybe not even take it, but at least listen to me. Or you'll be like, whatever, dude. Who are you? I don't care. Even if you don't use the advice, if you were open to it, I'll help you for life. If you weren't, I won't take it like to heart. But Rodney taught me that. Some people aren't open to it. Yeah. Another reason I wrote the book, some people's pride get in the way, but their pride doesn't get in the way of reading a book. So therefore I'm not going to abandon that person. I just realized they feel like they just got off stage, just perform. It's very vulnerable. And they feel like I'm now telling them they're not, not funny. And I'm not saying that if they really thought about it, I only came up to them because the joke connected. If someone comes up to you and talks to you about your joke, even if it didn't work, it made them listen. There's something there out of the feeling. 
social media is the greatest open mic there is. You wrote a premise on Twitter. You wrote a premise on Facebook. If you get a ton of likes, people connect. You don't write the joke out. That's what I put up premises all the time. They become something totally different, but I can find out if people of all walks of life relate to what I'm saying. So and their likes are their advice. They're running up. Yeah, it's your it's your focus group, so to speak. Um, coming from a guy who runs focus groups for a living. Uh well, as we as we wrap up here, Pat, tell me what's what are some of the bigger things you've learned about yourself as a person through comedy, through your, you know, 12, 12 plus years of, uh, of being a comic. Some of the things that you've learned about yourself. I mean, a ton. I've, I've had so many changes. I started comedy married and drinking and I'm divorced and I don't drink. Um, I was, I've been overweight. I've been underweight. I've been at the shape I'm in now. I was a guy who just literally went up there without writing any jokes. And I became a person that now, writes things and takes time and detail to do it. I was somebody who was afraid of taking advice and now I help give advice. I think most importantly, what I learned from comedy is, is that people can change and people can, you know, throughout life, learn, always learn. We always hear that old dogs, new tricks thing. No, you can always learn things, but be open to learning everything. Realize what I learned the most, I guess, is that I don't know everything. And to be honest, I don't know most things because to do good at comedy, I have to learn other things. I have, I, I can just talk about me if I want, but if I want to relate to you, I need to learn things about the world that I wouldn't normally look at. Be open to everything. Watch shows I wouldn't normally watch. Pay attention to comedy and music that I wouldn't normally pay attention to. Read the parts of the paper I never read before. Be open to everything. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to question yourself. And, and, don't, and don't be afraid to fail. So I think I learned that a lot because that made me grow as a person. I've been able to relax more as a person and not be someone who was – I didn't like myself when comedy started. I was not, I had depression. I was not a fan of myself. I have very low self-esteem and I've started to love myself because of discover, not because I'm on stage and they're laughing. That's nice and all, but it's not about them. It's about me being proud enough to go. What I think is worth it. What I, the work I put into it, the blood, sweat and tears is worth the effort. And I, and I feel good. I can have a job that I love and enjoy. Yes, I'm poor and I now am non-essential, but at a moment I was loved and I, I would rather be poor and do something I love before I die than do something I hate and always wonder why. Yeah. Yeah. There is that self-discovery aspect to, to comedy, isn't there? I mean, if you're, you know, and, and, and I do write. Um, I write a lot. I, I try to write something every day, but there's like part of my writing process is, is usually sparked by some kind of insight I, I had into myself, something new about myself that I didn't realize I had. And then I'm just trying to work through in words or through a story. Um, but with comedy there, there is that too, because I, most, most of everything that I've ever kind of said on stage is something that happened to me in my life or as a result of me being the father of triplets or, you know, being married for 20 plus years. It's like, you know, that's where, that's where I, that's the well I go to for material. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work, but it always involves this process of discovery. I probably learn more about myself through like my creative endeavors than I, than I have in anything else that I do. Because what you have to do, yes, 
no joke is a hundred percent truth. Mo, it can be ninety percent sometimes. But the truth, if the truth was hilarious, then your uncle at a barbecue would be the funniest guy in the world. So it's like one of those things where it's like we have to add things. But to do that, we have to look at the characters within the story, and you are one of the characters. So it's easy to break down. Oh, my wife said this. You know her personality. I can teach that personality, or I can add things. How many times you have three kids? Sometimes you could take something two of the kids did, but put it on another kid because those characters are different than the actual children. And by telling the audience one thing, you have to change it. But when your character is up there and you have to, you have to decide who you're going to be to the audience because they have to be able to laugh at you, but you don't want them to hate you. You, they have to like you even in your struggles and your stupidness and whatever you did. So how do you, you have to look at yourself, break yourself down and say, how, how do I want the world to see me while making fun of me? And that takes a ton of, digging deep self therapy you can really learn a lot about yourself and it kind of can change who you are because you start to be more self-aware of how you're seen yeah yeah i mean i one of the best things that somebody told me once um after i did uh a performance was you know i started to hate you in the beginning of that but you won me over and I'm like, well, I knew then and there that I must have done something wrong because I never, you know, and I probably started off with some like stupid joke about, well, I don't even know what, but, but it, you're right. I mean, they, they do have to like you, like, like the character in a story, like your protagonist, if you're not invested in the, you know, what this person is going through and the struggle they have, if, if you don't want to see them come to some kind of resolution, then they're going to stop reading the book. And you almost have to think of yourself on stage as the protagonist. I mean, some people can get away with, with playing the villain on, on stage, I guess, but um, yeah, but it's not about you being likable. It's about what you're saying and how you're making them feel. You can go up there and be a piece of shit because people in the audience are pieces of shit, but they want to see someone be a bigger piece of shit than them. If some when, when you watch a comic who's 400 pounds go on stage and he destroys, why, why is he destroying? Yeah, I mean, obviously he's funny as well, and I'm not just saying the weight part, but why is he doing well? Because a lot of, especially Americans, feel overweight. They have that struggle. They don't want people to joke about it. They don't like being told they're fat. But when they see someone fatter than them having fatter problems, they can laugh at it now. If so, if you're a guy who maybe cheated on his taxes or did it or, or was like, you know, the girl cheated on her boyfriend or like that, and you might feel a little like a scumbag, whatever. But then some guy goes up and he's like, all I do is cheat on women and all I do is bezel money. And I'm this trickster type guy. It's likable in the way that you can relate and you can make yourself feel better and you can laugh at your own pain because of them so a lot of time that self-deprecating or that scumbag type person can make you laugh and weirdly enough like them the same way you would like all the characters in always sunny in philadelphia yeah where you love them they're all terrible fucking people but we all love them they're all become like our spirit animals because you can understand once you get to know the character if you display your character right and they get to in five minutes that's hard but if you're just doing 25 to 45 to an hour you can really have people learn who you are and understand the character. And therefore, if they learn who your character is by minute 20, you can tell a joke without really explaining yourself and they get why you're doing what you do. And that's the best way. If you could make them cheer and give you an applause break and you're supposed to be an asshole on stage, you are doing something beautiful. Well, there, there you have it. I mean, we started this off by talking about wrestling and uh, we ended with some some important words of wisdom from the great Pat Oates. 
It's like I cut a wrestling promo at the end. So what you going to do, brother? Read my book. <laughs> all right. Here will be the last question I'll ask. Favorite wrestling match of all time? I have so many. But I would go with the retirement match between Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair. I think it was the most – in a WrestleMania, it was the most emotional. It was incredible. And you could see the real pain. But it was just legends. One – going down gracefully to another teaching everything watching Shawn Michaels lip. I love you. Then having to super kick him in the head and pin him and end his career. It, even if you're not a wrestling fan, watch that match and you will like wrestling for that moment. The 30 for 30 on Ric Flair is amazing. Um, I have to say I, I I'd have to go with, and, and I, I stopped watching wrestling um, years ago, but my favorite wrestling match of all time, WrestleMania three, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat versus Macho, Macho Man, Man Randy, Randy Savage. Savage. To me, that that was that was when wrestling became it was like drama plus suspense. Like and and it was just I, I couldn't get over it. And then of course he loses a month later to the honky tonk man. But Right. And then the whole story of Ricky Steamboat is a crazy back and forth anyway. But Ricky Steamboat and his matches with Ric Flair are legendary. Those are the greatest matches of all time with him and him and Flair. But yeah, the Macho Man match, the two of them. Macho Man was somebody who people didn't realize this, but he scripted everything out. And Steamboat wasn't that way. When they got together for WrestleMania three Macho Man Wanda removed, written down, calculate this and that, and that's not Steamboat's way. But Steamboat trusted him with this, and they put on this incredible match with, you know, with with false finish after false finish after false finish, where you just kept believing these things were going to happen. And they once again, you watch that match, and even if you if you if you watch wrestling now and try to go back and watch that, it doesn't have the high flying and the stunts and the athletic ability. But two people told a story. Yeah. Well, I why I love wrestling, I love comedy for the same reason. When I watch wrestling and I watch comedy, I don't see the performers. I see something. I see a movie in my head. When they tell a story right, a comic says it. I don't see the comic talking. I see the story they're telling. When I see wrestlers tell me a story in the ring and I understand the pain, why this person's doing that, why why Bret Hart is working your leg over and over and over so he can get you into this thing, this struggle of you having to stop you from doing this thing so he can take over and do this thing to stop you. And then the pain going through and then – it's a, it's to me it's a male soap opera and that's why I love watching and that match definitely is that it's one of the greatest matches of all it's probably, it's considered like to most people the greatest WrestleMania match of all time. There's a couple here that can battle and they're usually either Undertaker matches or something like that. But yeah, that match is incredible. And it had Miss Elizabeth. Yes, it did. Anything involving Miss Elizabeth with Macho, especially with her, him and Macho, him and uh, Ultimate Warrior when she came back and the embrace. You're like they tried to recreate that this year with a, they have a big fat character named uh, otis and there's a woman named mandy rose he's fat and gross she's beautiful and there was dolph ziggler was being the antagonist and at the end he got the girl and every person felt like i'm a big fat slob i can get a hot lady now because otis did they, they did the same story which they can always create forever it's the same story always but it's a way they make you connect to it timeless now now since we are the same age i have to ask about this regarding wrestling the pile driver album you remember the pile driver album Remember, I had on tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Greatest song on that album. I liked, I mean, there's a lot of good things. I liked Grab Them Cakes. <laughs> Junkyard, Junkyard Dog. Dog singing Grab Them Cakes. And he would come out. I loved Junkyard Dog as a kid. Yeah. I didn't know he was a guy who was wrestling forever before in the AWA and things like that. I just knew him as this character who wore a chain, which, by the way, 
that aged poorly. Um, but, but at the time, <laughs> aged really poorly. A black man with a chain coming out to the ring, uh, thump on his butt. But it was he was fun. He was lovable, and he would he, when he came out to grab them cakes. I don't know. I didn't know what cakes were. I didn't know that meant like butt cheeks. But it was just like grab them cakes, y'all. And it was like it was. I could sing that song, and it didn't even feel like a oh, wrestling song. It felt like a song. It was like a James Brown feel to it. Yeah, I'm going with Demolition. I mean, that was, uh, to me, I was big into metal back in those days. Right. Um, I, we, I referenced Anthrax earlier, but uh, the Demolition, man. Axe and Slash. I think, it was, was that Rick Axe Berenger? Uh, uh, Berenger did something. He did Rock the and guy- Roll Hoochie Coo with Mean Gene Okerlund. Well, right. Well, Berenger actually helped write a couple of the wrestling theme songs before they got Yeah, he uh, did John, Real American. He did now. Real American. Well, do you know who wrote Real American? I thought it was Jimmy Rick- Hart. Was Jimmy Hart? Jimmy Hart was a musician in the 50s and 60s in bands and stuff. Jimmy Hart has written a ton of people's songs. He worked with Berenger together. Jimmy Hart wrote a lot of the theme songs in the 80s. He's a, he's a musician, too. A great performer and great mind, and also the guy who carried Hogan's weed through airports. <laughs> That's exactly who he is. He, he was around forever because he's Hogan's guy. He would carry Hogan's weed and wow. take care of Hogan. Him and my and uh, Brutus the Bar Beefcake were Hogan's guys. He carried them through everything. Now Jimmy Hart did have some talents to help out too. Beefcake did not. Beefcake just existed because he was Hogan's boy, and Hogan had all that power. But Ed Leslie should not have existed in the world of goddamn wrestling. That's a different story. But Jimmy Hart was a musician. I forget the name of the band he was in, but they actually had a number one, like a hit single at one point too. Um, if you look that up, but yeah, he helped write that song, and he wrote a couple other of those songs as well. He was he was a very musically talented guy. Okay, last one, and now maybe we can agree or disagree on this one. Girls in Cars. Should that never have been recorded? Yeah, that's an awful song. Terrible. That's Terrible. awful. I mean, you can't even really sing it. Yeah, that was Rick, Rick Martell and... Um... The model Rick Martell and... Uh, it wasn't Dino Bravo. Was, no, um... Oh, shit. Christ. And it wasn't Dino Bravo, but I could see Dino Bravo. And it's it was a tag Dino team, Bravo. I mean, I could picture them in my I head. know, um, Martell, and they were the Express, and no, no, it was, I'm off on it. That's all right. I loved, I loved the model version of Rick Martell. That was my favorite version of him. Um, that was a very underrated character. Uh, that was back when you didn't get to watch good, two good people wrestle each other on Saturday mornings. They didn't do that. You'd watch jobbers go against guys. But once in a while, you get to watch Rick Martell fight Bret Hart. And you're like, ooh, this is something. Or Rick Martell when he had to be blind, blindfolded and wrestle Jake the Snake Roberts. That was, that was a great match. Two guys in blindfolds trying to reach each other and then Martell cheating. <laughs> <laughs> and he would spray people with perfume and blind them. It was like, that was wrestling was beautiful then. It really was. Good times. Well, listen, Pat, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, I, I appreciate this. it. Thank you. And they can find the book on Amazon. How not to suck at comedy. It comes in paperback and it comes in ebook as well. And it's available there and, and grab yourself a copy. If you're thinking about doing comedy, if you know someone who likes doing comedy, um, if you're someone who's been doing comedy a while, just don't tell people so you don't feel embarrassed. The name is there because it's not going to make you good. It's not going to make you funny, but it will help you not suck. There you go. And then if, if people wanted a signed copy, what, what could they do to get one of those? Right now with the COVID, probably nothing, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, because I don't think they want to send me one through Amazon. But if you buy a copy and you know I'm going to be at a show, bring it. I'll sign it. All right. So uh, Amazon for the book. Now, uh, some comics may want to have a, a clip reviewed by you. Um, and maybe you want to give them some pointers. How could they do that? Oh, I, I do the, we used to call it comedy coaching, but the term was wrong. It's comedy feedback because people thought I, some people thought I became their comedy coach for life and they would message me every day. And I'm like, I can't help you every day. 
a lot of times when we want to submit clips to festivals or bookers or things like that, or just even only a lot of times like we were talking about for self-discovery, it is hard to judge yourself. It really is to watch your own joke. You created it. It's your baby. It's hard to judge it and say your baby's not doing well and your baby needs to learn more. So what I do is, and I, it's painstaking, but I, I actually enjoy it. If you sent me a five minute clip, it takes me literally two to three hours to watch your five minute clip. I break it down like John Madden, break it down game film. I break it down to every nuance, not even just about what you're doing on that clip, but about how you tell jokes, the structure of your jokes, how you set things up, your delivery, your cadence, things like that. And I break it down with feedback approaches, techniques, and edits that can help you learn how to write better, connect the jokes better make the audience understand you more and become more universally connecting with people and ha- learn how to write in the process. And I do that. And I, mean, I used to just say, Oh, hit me up for rates, whatever. I charge $50, but if you try to go to comics, learn anything else. Yeah. It costs me a little bit to sit there and watch it. It is, is way I make money, but I don't, but it, anyone I've done it for is that no one's ever complained. They've all said it's helped. I've helped guys who start off as open micers who are now opening up for national acts uh people from all over the country funny enough the only people that don't really do it is people from connecticut because i think they know me like i'm not i don't want that guy's help but i've helped more people in arizona and cleveland (laughs) than i have here and it's crazy but i enjoy it i love comedy i love watching people's comedy but some people are really bad there have been two times where i've sent people their money back and said i can't help you (laughs) And if somebody wanted your help in this regard, how would they go about getting it? Just email me at uh, patoatscomedy at gmail.com. Or if you find me on social media, believe me, just in my DM, just say I I heard about your comedy feedback and I'd like some information. Very good. Well, Pat, I feel like this interview went went over like a pile driver. It did. It's now illegal (laughs) and um, it ruined Stone Cold's career. But besides that, we're doing great. So, Michael, thank you so much. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you, Pat. Take care. So there it is, my conversation with Pat Oates. Great comedian, great guy, very generous with his time. If you want to get a copy of his book, and I suggest that if you are a comic of any ability, that you do, because it's a great a great book. I've read it. Um, I still stink, but uh, I don't suck. So the book lives up to its, uh, to its name. So the book, again, is How to Not Suck at Comedy. It is available from Amazon.com. Usually, Pat uh, will give you uh, a way to uh, get a signed copy, but in the days of COVID-19, that's uh, just not uh, prudent at this juncture, as Dana Carvey would say. Uh, So Amazon.com for Pat Oates' book. Also, if you're looking for any feedback on your sets or your highlight reels, uh, you can arrange for Pat to to give you that. Uh, There's a fee for that service, of course, because Pat's time is valuable, but reach out to him at uh, patoatescomedy at gmail.com. And if uh, you like what you hear, go back to other episodes of Uncorking a Story. Listen to some others. They're all good. And last but not least, if you want any more information about me, and if you want to buy maybe a couple of my books, which I hope you do, uh, go to MikeCarlin.com. That's C-A-R-L-O-N. The O always throws people off. So MikeCarlin.com. And, uh, yeah, just click on the old link there that says books, and uh, you'll... uh, learn how to buy a couple all right help send my kids to college so thank you uh, for listening for all uh, the uh, hard-working people here at the uncorking a story podcast and there are a lot of hard-working people here uh, this is mike carlin saying thank you for listening and until next time